Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to the March Podcast. We have a very exciting podcast in store. Uh, this one is uh, going to be themed cinematography. A lot of great questions and uh, cannot wait to get to them. I know I've sent out some social media buzz about me hopping on Badlands, and I want to tell everyone that I'm off for about four months to go embark on this amazing creative journey to really design the whole look and the feel of this world that no one has really ever seen before. And it's very exciting. David Dopkin is the director. I have an incredible team working alongside of me to be able to bring this baby to life. And I will be giving you the play-by-play -play as much as I can along this process. And uh, many onsets and tests and all these cool things will be coming out of it. So onward and upward, I'll continue to blaze the trail. We are going to move forward with the March podcast. Here's our first question. Hi, Shane. Do you consider yourself to have a visual signature? If so, what is it? And how do you create it? Are there any visual signatures of other cinematographers that you admire? Matt in Birmingham, UK. Well, Matt, that's a great question. Do I have a visual signature? One thing I try not to do is ever have a visual signature. Not in that that's a bad thing. I'm just always trying to mix it up. I, I don't like doing the same thing twice. When I had done a slew of sports movies, I felt I was okay in doing sports movies as long as I didn't duplicate the sport. So I did baseball. I did basketball. I did football. Football, I did marching bands. I did golf. So uh, each time it was a different perspective. It was sometimes an individual sport, sometimes team sports. I felt like that world I was trying 
you know, to continue to do a different sport so it wasn't uh, very repetitive. I started out in dramas. I shot uh, the Rat Pack, which was a drama. Then I went to the Skulls, which is kind of a teen thriller. Then I went to Crazy Beautiful, which was kind of a love story drama. Then Drumline, which was another sports uh, drama slash that sports kind of world. But, you know, it's like every time I tried to not duplicate myself. After I did Terminator Salvation, I had done my big tentpole movie. I had done the $200 million monolith. I got just berated with all these different offers, G.I. Joe 2, this, that, and the other thing. And I personally turned them all down because I did not want to be that action guy. When Scotty Waugh and Mike McCoy came to me with Act of Valor, I was like, I really don't want to do another action picture together. But what they were describing and how they wanted this movie to feel and what devices we were going to be uh, using to capture this world and really kind of put the audience inside the eyes of the Navy SEAL, I was all in because nobody had really done anything like this before. As a visual signature, I would say... I have a signature in regards to how I like to use a lot of cameras that are not necessarily all the same camera. That would be something that I would be known for, let's say, as a person that can really utilize and deploy 15 20, 30, 40, 50 cameras at their arsenal, not using them all at the same time, obviously, but being able to deploy and keep it organized and multitask in a way that delivers a huge emotional and immersive impact. That's one of the things that I've really come to be known for. Again, I try to mix it up all the time, so I don't think I really have a visual signature per se. So let's see, uh, other cinematographers that you you admire that have a visual signature. Okay. Bob Richardson. He has a visual style that he delivers almost every time. And it's, uh, and his lighting, everything really feels, I mean, that is the Bob Richardson look. Uh, Roger Deakins, I think he is somebody who also has that style and delivers that Roger Deakins look. Emmanuel Lebensky, he is somebody that mixes it up every time. And I aspire to be so much like him. It doesn't matter whether it's a million dollar movie or a $200 million movie or a $60 million, whatever it is, he is able to make it feel so unique. And I have to say, that's why this guy has won two in a row. And I think he's up to three or four Academy Awards total. This guy is a chameleon. And I think that is the artistry of a great cinematographer, is somebody that just ebbs and flows with the look and the feel and the director's vision and is able to literally deliver whatever is asked of him. And uh, I have to say that a lot of uh, directors, when they use the same director of photography over and over and over again, you obviously create a rapport. You obviously create a look. I'd say what other cinematographers that I, I admire that I think have a very unique look. Steven Spielberg's Janusz Kaminski, 
Okay, he has a very, very specific look when he sh mostly shoots film still. And he has this incredible look that he gets with this whole ENR process where he creates these very, very deep, dark blacks and uh, a really unique grain structure. And, you know, he's done that on a lot of his films, as well as using all these different nets, either in front or behind the glass to create beautiful out of focus blown uh, highlights so I think that is definitely a stylized look that I see uh, very repetitive from him Maddie Lebetique I think that is a uh, director of photography that changes it up uh, like Emmanuel Lebensky and kind of like how I do I really don't think Maddie I mean he does like Iron Man and then he can do Black Swan I mean that is a great range and that's what I aspire to be as a cinematographer is not somebody that has a visual signature just somebody that really ebbs and flows and understands the emotion of what the director is trying to portray and be able to deliver that at the best that I can I hope I answered your question there, Matt. The next question. Hi, Shane. I always try to get very film-like images, but I end up with a very stylized look. How can I achieve a cinematic look while keeping it looking real and not oversaturated? Well, there's those times for the oversaturated look and uh, talking about Into the Badlands, that is what I'm doing on this movie. I, I'm feeling this post-apocalyptic world that's like 100 or 200 years after the bombs have gone off. So I'm seeing as a, a world that's being reborn through like this nuclear radiation and everything. So I look at the grass is green, greener than green. The red clay is redder than red clay. You know, it's everything is just jacked. And that's kind of the look and feel that I'm going for. But it is a very stylized look. The Greatest Game had that same kind of feel, very oversaturated, but not in a too heavy-handed. You know, that's a, a wonderful fine line that you want to be in. And I think when you find it, it's when the magic happens. And Greatest Game, I use my inspiration of 1939 reclaimed Kodachrome prints, like the first color prints ever made. So they had a very deep saturation of colors, very contrasty, all these things kind of played into that whole look. A cinematic look is, hey, it doesn't matter whether it's oversaturated or if it fits the story and really delivers what you're looking for, then that can work as well. Basically, how I go about it is I try to be as real to the lighting and the locations that I can. When I walk into a room, I physically start shooting still photographs of the light and the quality and how it's coming into the room. It might not be the perfect time. It might not be late afternoon or early morning or whatever the best time or what the vibe is uh, when I specifically take that photograph. But I like seeing just how I just walk in there, plop a camera down and shoot a still and see what that feels like. And then I put it that into my mind and I'm like, all right, if this is the vibe of, of what we want it to look like, this is how I would emulate it. 
Okay, so obviously that light that's coming into the room is coming in from the windows. So to bring it up and intensify that, I'm going to bounce lights into big 12 by 20 ultra bounces to bring that soft ambience into the room. And you just look at it from what is real before you ever start lighting. And that's the one thing I really wanted to drive home as much as possible in the illumination experience. The biggest disservice you can do to yourself as a cinematographer is to walk into a room and start lighting it without putting your camera down, adjusting the color temp to see what the room looks like and how the reality of how the lights coming through the windows or there might be some practical lights on in the background, how that all plays with the right color temperature and then how all those practicals and the windows and all that stuff plays with a specific exposure that you set. And then I like to that. It's really kind of counterintuitive, but once you start to do it, what you realize is they are amazing opportunities that you would miss that are already there for the taking that if you start to light, they absolutely go away because you start bringing in your light and then the subtlety of like what that little practical was doing in the corner is lost. The ambience in the room is absolutely perfect. And when you start beefing it up so much, then that ambience and that that wonderful quality of the ambience is gone. When you really go about it in a cinematic way, I'm telling you, it is so, unless you're walking into an absolutely dark space or a, and, and even sets are not dark. There's obviously practicals around a lot of the times that you can turn on. And uh, I just tr start to go, okay, I plop my camera down. I turn on the practicals that are in the room. Okay, I look at it. All right, obviously we got to blow out those windows because we're on a set, but I start to use what is there and, oh, there's too many practicals. Let's turn some off. And then I start to take one light at a time and add, and then at some point I'll get to a place and I'll go, you know what? Let's start turning some lights off. And I do it systematically in a way that sometimes if you just start lighting away, you light with too many lights. And this whole process of putting the camera down, adjusting your color temperature, dialing in your exposure before you ever throw a light on. Now, the lights can already be in position. Your team, your pre-rig team, whoever has been there, they've cabled, they, you know, your, your idea when you walked into the tech scout, this idea of what you want it to look like has already been in play. So all those things are all ready to be able to strike on and, and bring to life. Before I do any of that, I just plop the camera down and I do this process and then I do it one stroke at a time, starting with the key light, looking how that feels like in the room. Okay. Do we need backlight? Do we need any separation? Do we need some hot overexposed? Do we need some more practicals? Okay. Add those last thing coming in with the fill light. Should it be cooler? Should it be warmer? What is all that thing? So all these things are going through my mind in a way to kind of understand and take it one light at a time, one stroke at a time, and just having the patience to be able to say, once you've lit it the way you've wanted, and I know, hey, the assistant director saying, yo, Shane, we got to go. I will systematically start turning off some stuff just to make sure that I made the right choice. And if I did, I acknowledge it. If I didn't, I turn some lights off and then we go. So that's what I got for you there. Next question, 
how do you do overheads? Do you create them yourself? If so, what program do you use? So this person is speaking of the overheads that I do with all my lighting schematics. And it's really a, a fun process. It is very time consuming. We had a wonderful person, Matt, on the inner circle that did all those 3D ones and for us that I thought was amazing in our three camera lighting setup. Whatever the case may be, you know, that's very advanced. What works for me is this simple program if you're an Apple user called iDraw. If you're a PC user, you have a ton more drawing programs at your uh, arsenal to kind of deploy and, and uh, find something great for you. It's really funny with Apple, there's very minimal options to some extent that are at least simple enough for you to use and not so complex. I'm not big into all these little icons and these light icons and everything. I just, I just create these little figures and the lights all by hand and I'll save them uh, so they are in a little quiver of template that I can just pull from fairly quickly so I don't have to build them all the time over and over and over again. iDraw works very well. It's very simple. You can use all different colors and all different fonts and gradations and all that good stuff to kind of uh, bring your overheads and your lighting schematics to life. Here's a long one. Hi, Shane. I hope this message finds you well. First, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your expertise. Through your YouTube videos, blog, and inner circle, I helped develop something very similar in the audio space with my mentor and friend, Grammy Award-winning mix engineer, David Pinsando. So I fully appreciate the amount of work this takes in addition to your day-to-day -day duties. Like a good portion of your students, I assume I'm also a self-taught photographer making the transition into motion. My question is probably a newbie one, but it's about frame rates and how it impacts the cinematic filmic look. In terms of feel and finish, what does 2398 give you versus 24 versus 30? What is it that makes footage look like broadcast TV documentary versus soap opera versus cinema? Color grading post aside, is that primarily a function of frame rates or is there something else that is contributing to how the footage looks other than depth of field control? How much does a camera lens lighting factor into the look as opposed to the frame rate? Much appreciative. Cheers, Zan. Well, Zan, great question. So, to start off, 2398 has been a frame rate that syncs with sound better. So if we do 24 frames, there's like some little drop down, pull up, whatever the heck these terms are. But 2398 has become where you want to be shooting if you're going to be doing 24 frames per second and recording audio. So I shoot most of the time 2398. Now there's times when you get out in night exteriors where you're shooting 2398 and just that slight 98 and not 24. That slight difference will have the sodium vapor lights on the streets. They'll slightly just breathe because you're slightly out of sync with your 60 hertz because you have to stay in uh, multiples of 12. So it's there's a whole chart that you can download, but it's like the safe speeds are 6, 12, 24, 30, 40, 60, and 120 are the speeds that you can shoot 
when you have like fluorescence that you can't change or uh, night exteriors where obviously you have to work with the sodium and metal halides and everything that are, are out there on the street. So you have to shoot in those frame rates. If you shoot 48 frames or 72 frames or 36 frames or 96 frames, any of those frame rates, you're going to get flicker on your lights. So when you shoot 2398, you just want to check to make sure your sodium vapors are not breathing too much for you. I shot all need for speed and you saw all the night exteriors that I shot on that thing and uh, they're breathing a little bit, but you can't tell. It's so damn quick. And even when it's a long scene underneath the lights, you don't really realize it. 2398, 30 frames per second is something that definitely is going to give you more of a broadcast feel like all the sports and and all the uh soap operas and all that stuff are shot at 30 most of the time things that make them look more in that range of of uh looking more video or tv-esque I, I just don't shoot 30 frames per second ever. I just, I don't like what it does. I love the motion blur of 24 and that's what we've become accustomed to, uh, or 2398 in our psyche and our minds, how we view the world through cinema. So I just like keeping in that uh, realm and I think it looks very cinematic. Depth of field is a big deal. A lot of the soap operas, there is not shallow depth of field. Everything is kind of in focus. A lot of it has to do with the size of the chip that they're using. If they're not using a 35 millimeter chip, then they're using a one thirds or two thirds chip. Then obviously there's going to be a lot more depth of field. Lighting has a lot to do with it as well. When you blanket rooms and, and uh, like a lot of the soap operas are done or, you know, even the reality TV shows using the wider angle lenses, everything's kind of in focus. The cinema is about really taking that person, that individual, that scene, that emotion, and kind of separating them from the world a lot of times and bringing them out of the world so our eyes are just directed on where you want the emotion and where you want the audience to focus on. And a lot of that is done with depth of field and rack focusing, as well as how you light a scene so your eyes go to where you want it. Or sometimes, if you're trying sleight of hand, you light something so people are looking over there, but something really serious is going on on the left side of frame, but they're focused because you got all the light on the right. That's the magic of cinema, understanding how to play with light and play with lenses as well, using that shallower depth of field. And I'm not talking one, two and one, four, and even a two, a two, two, eight is a great range to, to play in, especially when you're shooting action, you know, you you want to be in that 284 split just to give the focus pullers a, a chance and make sure that that action that was absolutely incredible that they can only do once is not out of focus. There's a wonderful tug of war that goes on with you want to have the visual style of shallow depth of field if that's what works well for your story. But at the same time, you want to make sure you're delivering for the director that performance and when we get it right it's all right and it's not oh man I just missed the focus when we pushed in on his face and you know well we're not doing it again so you really have to balance that 
that's the magic of cinema. As a cinematographer, your job to really balance the vision versus the performance and delivering the emotion. You don't want to handcuff yourself with the vision so much that you cannot deliver that emotion for the director and for the actors to shine. Again, if the movie looks great, but nobody is attached to the characters, you have failed. But if the movie looks good and the emotions are absolutely amazing and you're sitting there in the audience and you're crying and you're laughing and you're going on this journey, then you have done amazingly well and you have succeeded. It's that wonderful balance of being a, an artist and, and designing the creativity, but that has to form, has to follow function in regards to working with the directors and the performances to be able to get the best work. Next question. Hi, Shane. As a young DOP who does mostly no or low budget short films, I'm obviously trying to approve and gradually progress, which I feel I am. But one thing I'm struggling with is finding a balance between buying equipment and renting it. Do I spend hundreds of thousands of pounds on lights, lenses, recent cameras, etc., Or do I work with what I've got, buy a small bits occasionally, but have most of my equipment rented for me? It's something I'd really like help with as I don't have a lot of money. So when I do get some, I want to spend it wisely in a way that will benefit my career. Thank you. I have to say that in answering this question, it's something that I get asked a million times because I know there's a lot of owner operators out there, especially in the inner circle. And we're trying to do whatever we can to keep our kit as progressive as possible. You know, that's what you're known for. Hey, let's do this. And he brings his package and he's got some lights and he's got all this stuff. And, and that makes you more marketable. For me, the best investment, if you are going to invest in any kind of gear, it's lenses. Glass is something that I don't think really loses its value. Cameras, obviously, we've seen that. The cameras, if the manufacturer does not future-proof them, they're just going to be boat anchors very soon. Trying to stay on top of technology in this crazy-ass world that we have right now with all this new camera coming out every two months, it's very daunting and it's very difficult. And if you want to purchase a camera, you have to purchase that camera that you feel fits you that fits you and being comfortable, just like buying clothes. If you buy it to be hip, but you're not comfortable in the hipness, then what the hell is it? You have to be comfortable in those clothes, just like you have to be comfortable with that camera that then you feel can deliver whatever the director or whatever the project is thrown at you. Picking that camera, it's got to be comfortable. It's got to be something that you know that you can bend and break and do all these different things. That is the comfort level of being an owner-operator. Buying lights, buying C-stands, all that stuff. I have a small little package that I have that I just keep so I can do all these tests and everything for all of you and educational lighting uh, seminar stuff. But, you know, I don't have a plethora of all that stuff. I rent it. 
Uh, I rent it from a, a production house, a rental house, Pascal Lighting, and they dump it off and I don't have to store it. Uh, after the end of the job, they come back and they take it all away and it works out awesome. Rental is a amazing thing. Outpouring all that money is a very, uh, can get very cost prohibitive. So I would say in the lighting and grip side, keep a little package together that you can go out and do interviews or whatever you need to do. It's something that you can always set up and have in your quiver. But when doing you know, short films and projects and, and, uh, lower budget things like you're describing. I mean, I, I would say, you know, you just go out and you rent that stuff. And there's a lot of places now that are renting for no low budget projects where you can get a good amount of gear that's been kind of, you know, used a lot, but, uh, hell, it still works. So I'm, I'm all for it. And you can grab that stuff on the cheap. But rental is your friend. And uh, don't get caught up in this, whatever the next great camera is and what you need to buy. I would say have a camera that you feel really completes your soul. And then if they want a different camera, then you rent that camera and you uh, are able to deliver the great look and feel of their vision by just renting. Next question. I believe you said you typically shoot for a 60 to 70 IRE to expose faces. But what about in night scenes, outdoor, indoor, where you want most everything else to be black or lightly lit with moonlight or streetlights? Any advice on night time types of shots? Rich. What I set up is the best case scenario where if you are, you got somebody sitting next to a window and you're bringing in like this beautiful day ambience, light, uh, you know, Rembrandt style. Think about how each scenario works where we're usually putting people near windows, near doorways, any place that there's a, a way to get light onto them overheads, fluorescence in a uh, school, in a hospital, whatever it may be. The 60 to 70 is an area that I play with. Sometimes it's 45 to 55 when I'm shooting day exteriors because I am balancing the backlight and how much fill light and you don't want to overfill because then it doesn't look natural and all those kind of things factor in to finding your right IRE value. For night, uh, on that Canon EOS, you know, understanding, exposing your cinema EOS, I did a whole sequence where I brought the IREs way down to like uh, eight 15 to 8 IRE on Monette's face like she was at a bar. That is where I play a lot of night exteriors where I'm just bringing enough up in there just above the the black level to to just illuminate their faces just barely enough but then playing with highlights and hot pools in the background so they you know move in and out of these different qualities if you're doing just straight moonlight then I backlight with a gray color of a moon so if I only use tungsten I don't use daylight for my moon so I would use 3200 tungsten and then I'd probably turn my camera to like 2900 Kelvin and that way it would cool the moon up and make it a little gray and then off of that I would just bounce in and fill from like the ambience of just the moon and the moisture and the whatever's in the air you know you're making that up theoretically that moon ambience but it's what's bouncing off trees what's bouncing off the grass what's bouncing off a house whatever it is I'm using that and creating that and putting that 
down into that 15 to 20 IRE range and then having the backlight be slightly around that area as well so it doesn't get too extreme. But then there's times when you want it extreme that you want to bring in this hot searing moonlight. I mean, look at Bob Richardson and Django Unchained. I mean, they're in the middle of the forest and the moonlight's coming down like it's, uh, you know, five, six stops overexposed onto uh, Django when they come up upon those people. And that whole look and feel, that was Bob Richardson wanted to take that story, his interpretation of what he wanted it to look and feel like. I think the IRE value is just subject to the creator and uh, what you're going for and the look and feel and the mood of what you're trying to convey. Yes, you want to work in all different ranges. I'm just trying to show you the optimum exposure for these specific cameras where they shine brightest. Okay. Hi, Shane. Thanks for providing this amazing learning opportunity. I have one question that has been bugging me for quite some time. What is that double car horn looking thing that I see on so many big camera setups right above the lens? And what is it for? So those wacky little car horn looking devices on top of the camera is what you call a cine tape. And what it is, it's a sonar device for the focus puller to be able to see specific feet or meters or centimeters, whatever you can put it in different measurements. You can understand how far something is away from the, the focal plane. And this is a very, very powerful device. Uh, especially when you're kind of, you know, don't have time for focus marks and you're kind of just really running and gunning and going with it. And Zen style is what I like to say and how I like to roll out. I'm not big on marks. I like to light an area and let the actors move within it so it feels as real and as rich for them to their playground and having a little more room to uh, express and emote. I'm not big on that, but it's very difficult for focus pullers, especially when you want them to be at like a T2 so I can keep as shallow depth of field as possible. The cine tape has become a very powerful tool for these focus pullers to uh, understand distance and be able to always get some kind of a bearing. You know, you might get into an area that you never thought you were going to be in and it's hard to judge depth and bam, you look and oh, five foot six. Whew. That was great with film. But now with these new digital cameras, uh, I'm seeing people move from the horns to just this peaking and focus assist monitors. And that's kind of where this world is really going with how sharp everything is now and how the digital sensor sees depth of field, I think, differently than film sees depth of field. You're getting a very different kind of world of focus pullers out there. Most of the time, the Zen guys, they will pull it and the camera moves around and they're watching where the actor's feet are going and they're moving with it and they're judging that distance beautifully. And they're like these mad scientists of Zen, right? But then there's a new breed that's coming up the ladder that is all based on focus assist and peaking and really seeing those different colors and how everything goes red 
head, if their eyes are sharp or, you know, all that. And I find that I try to hire a mixed bag on my movies. I, I try to hire one guy that's really into the new style and one guy that's doing it the old way. That's what we did on Fathers and Daughters. I had Eric Swanick that uh, wasn't really into the whole peaking thing. He would only use the peaking when it was absolutely essential for like these really killer close-ups. And then I had Derek Edwards that was all about the peaking and all about the focus assist. So it was a wonderful mixed bag of focus pullers and how they interpolated each scene. And we got some incredible imagery on that movie based on both of their excellence. That's what those things are up there. Next question. Do you look at other cinematographers and artists work for inspiration? If so, who or what are they? Okay, other cinematographers, absolutely. I would say Robert Ellswit, Roger Deakins, Emmanuel Lebensky, Bob Richardson, Greg Tolan. These are cinematographers that really inspire me and really have uh, helped take my lighting and lensing and cinematography skills to a whole other level. Just watching what they do and analyzing it and trying to understand and get inside their head and why they make the choices that they make and all that good stuff. Another way that I look for inspiration is in still photography and in art. Cavaggio, George de la Tour, Monet, Rembrandt. There's all these different artists that really paint in a very cinematic way and beautiful contrast and, and color. And, and, uh, so I look to inspiration of those and the artists and the painters, as well as the still photographers that use different tones and the way they, they compose and all these things. I, I just look all over the place to try and hone a look and a feel that I can then turn into my my own. I kind of cherry pick all these different wonderful inspiration and artists and cinematographers and then I put it into a bowl and you know kind of mix it around and, and out comes Shane Hurlbut's look and feel for this movie and that's kind of how I go about it. Hi Shane, I did a project a couple months ago for school with a Panavision Gold camera. Primo lenses and Kodak 5203. Thank you for your suggestion to use Primo lenses. The project turned out very successful, so that now I am being offered work and representation in Los Angeles. My question is about prep time. What do you consider when prepping for a commercial or a feature? What do you require for prep? And as somebody starting out, what do you think I should do in regards to prep? Also, if you felt the production wasn't giving you enough prep time, should you turn the job down? Nikki. Great question. And uh, the illumination experience got into the nuts and bolts of how I prep. And I prep uh, very unlike most director of photographies. I do it in a way that uh, has a, a different style. And uh, I think that if you're able to, or if you were able to go to the Illumination Experience and you got all that information downloaded, if you were not, there is a module, I think it's module number two or three in the workshop that talks about camera prep, where I really go down into how I prep features and how I kind of unite a whole team 
around the document of the script and things that I add to that document to be able to get all departments working on the director's vision. If a commercial or a feature is not giving you enough prep, I prep. I prep whether they're paying me or not. If I go into a commercial, I'll always ask the director, when are you going on your location scouts? Because obviously they always go before we then do the technical scout and I go out on the location scouts. Are they paying me to do that? No. Does it help huge and enable you to deliver a vision that probably you would not be able to deliver if you just showed up on the tech scout? Yes. So that's why I do it. I'm working for free just as much as I'm getting paid. This is how the business works, and it's really the only way you can get ahead. If you are looking to get paid for every hour you pin into a project, well, you might as well just stay right where you are. You have to give of your soul and your time and your expertise and your advice way more for free. I would say in the quantitation of me being in this business for over 20 years, I have worked for free 70% of the time of the 20 years and 30% I've actually gotten paid for the hours that I've worked. So that is a great gauge of how much work you have to do to set yourself apart, to set yourself ahead of the pack and to do whatever is required to deliver the vision. And uh, I see it as this. If I don't go and look at the locations with the director, then I'm not giving getting that bonding time and getting inside his mind and getting inside of his head of what he wants to pull off. If I didn't do that, then I'm scrambling on the tech scout day and we got one down day and we're trying to throw it all together and get the right crew. I haven't given the production a heads up that this is going to be probably a little more than you thought you had budgetarily wise. So now they can move money around. But on the day before we start shooting, there's none of that uh, moving around time. So a lot of the time it doesn't go on the screen. The budget gets cut, things are reduced. And when that happens, that means that you're not able to put it all on the screen. Even though I'm there for free, it's helping me be a better director of photography on the day. The production company looks as like, man, I love this guy. He comes in, he does this stuff. You know, you all of a sudden now you're really formulating a great relationship with the production companies that you do go the extra mile and you're looking out for their bottom line and trying to reduce budgets and everything because that's what it's all about, right? You're 33 0.3% the director's vision. You're 33.3% inspiring your, your crew and getting the guys and putting them in the best place and thinking about them and making sure that they're taken care of. And then the other 33.3% of that 100% module of bringing the director's vision to life is being with production and helping them and understanding th what their budget is and how you can work with it and how you can compromise, but then not because you've oh, spun it in a way that plan A is very expensive, but your plan B is even better and saves money. So it's like this whole process that goes into it. This has taken me 20 years to master this prep process, and I've kind of delivered it all to you in this Illumination Experience Workshop, and I think Module 2 or Module 3. So you can really uh, hone in and take a look at that. Hi, Shane. I wasn't able to make your IE tour, but I have bought the HD downloads and loved it. I like your idea of a keyframe for each scene. I understand its purpose 
to be the visual main idea of this paragraph of the story, but how would you use it? Is it the first thing that you shoot on a scene and then show the director for approval of the mood to look before you shoot the rest of the scene? Or is it just your own personal preference? I'm just not sure what you would do with the keyframe or why you would care about a keyframe after you've already shot the whole scene. Love your work and thanks for all you do. Paul, Houston, Texas. The keyframe is the idea of each scene. What is that one shot? that will deliver the most emotional impact with just one frame. Whether that one frame moves down a corridor and goes upstairs and wraps around and then jumps down a hole, whatever that one keyframe shot is, it's that emotional impact with just one shot. And it's not something where you're saying, oh, okay, you know, I'm showing him for approval. No, it's in the design. It's in the shot list. You've talked to the director. You've gone down the road of, of showing him these keyframes and these ideas. On Crazy Beautiful, our shooting schedule was very tight. And what I described is I set the shot up and the director came in and said, whoa, what is that? These are, this was a, an example of how much prep you get sometimes how many conversations you can have with the director. Obviously, there's not going to be all this time to discuss every keyframe. I try to, on the day, I would go, okay, this is where I was thinking the keyframe is for this scene. And then you discuss it with him or with her. And these discussions happen uh, during prep, during conversations in the van, going from location to location, whatever it is. It's these kind of iconic images that deliver that uh, emotional fire power with just one shot. It just helps you as a cinematographer design. And that is one of the best things that I can give you from advice uh, as a uh, of coming up the ladder is becoming a, a great cinematographer. A lot of it has to be designed. Throwing stuff together with just from the shooting from your hip and everything, well, that's one style. And it's a style that is unkept. It's something that if the project and the director and the story says shoot from the hip, be unkept, be that kind of vibe, then absolutely. But most of the time, it's not that. And what a keyframe does is it really starts to help you materialize a design in your cinematography and a design in your emotional impact. And those are the things you want to be thinking of all the time, especially as you're starting to become and going up the ladder as a cinematographer. And these are the building blocks. And this is one huge building block for you to just think about. Now, when I'm doing movies, they are all in my mind. I'm not saying, okay, this is the keyframe for the scene. I've already got it. But what I'm trying to show you is the building blocks of cinematography and for you to take that keyframe and it helps you start to design what you're thinking about from an emotional standpoint, because emotions are everything. If you're not grabbing an audience with emotion, then you are failing. So these things are very important to kind of be the building blocks of cinematography.
All right, we're going to take one last question. Hi, Shane. I'm in pre-production stages of a short film, which is quite ambitious in nature. The short is a planned, single-take, tracking shot style following a young man and his two friends who are picked up in an alleyway and driven to a house to commit a violent home invasion. There are a lot of moving parts and it is more like a choreography, a dance recital at the moment than planning a shoot at the moment. Do you have any tips or experience you could share on how to execute an ambitious shot as mentioned above? Well, that's exactly what they are. They are a wonderful choreographed dance. And I'll take a couple examples to kind of uh, dive in for you. The Navy SEALs, when they enter a room, they enter it like a ballet. Each member of the SEAL team has a specific place to go once they enter a room. Ones go left, one goes right, one goes center, uh, one goes low, one goes high. You know, they have this whole kind of beautiful ballet. Now, for me as a cinematographer, I need to be able to understand and show an audience that and how they move. So I wanted to do this whole sequence where an act of valor, when they storm, when they hit that Costa Rican compound, I wanted it to be as much through the eyes of this one Navy SEAL as possible for you to really see what was going on with that whole process and how they'd go and move through and you'd see one guy down low and he's looking underneath cots and you see a guy looking around the corner and then you see a guy looking down the hallway and you see the hand come in and he squeezes them and they move on and that took probably about two three hours to light because i was spinning 360 degrees in there and the camera was all done from a helmet cam perspective where I had to coach the seal on where he was looking and how much he tilted down and how much he tilted up. And that was a, a wonderful ballet in itself of having him being a, a camera operator and uh, understanding the process of what that took and, and how to go about it does seem like a dance recital and it does seem very choreographed. But once it's lit in a way that you can move 360 degrees. And once you give the Navy SEALs or your actors this ability to move within the space, it all starts to come alive. So in your sequence that you described, I did something like this in Fathers and Daughters. And I uh, went on this whole shot on onset with Shane. I think it was six or seven. You got to look in there. It's it's a, a six or seven minute shot that I did in Fathers and Daughters, where Amanda Seyfried and Aaron Paul are walking down the street, and we're going with them. And then all of a sudden, she stops. He turns around, comes up to her. Uh, they have a conversation. She bolts, runs across the street, hails a cab. He comes flying around the backside of the cab right before the door closes. He grabs the door, and the camera hops in the front seat and we're watching them have this whole conversation they drive six or eight blocks they stop at a stoplight and she bolts out of the other side and Aaron 
Paul runs out and throws his cash and we go with them and we run two blocks down the street and swirl around into a beautiful 360 profile spinning around into a profile shot where we land on them and uh, she's like, I don't know how to do this. And he's like, do what? She's like, be the girlfriend. And they hug and embrace. That's picking it at the right place at the right time. We wanted to shoot this between 3 and 4.30 because I knew the sun would kind of pierce through the different buildings on the street. So you'd get this low light that would flick across them and it had beautiful softness and ambience. And, you know, you just formulate and plan these different shots, this one shot to at that right time. If you're doing nights, then I did it in Need for Speed, these long one shots as well. You're, you know, you're lighting all these different areas and you're letting them move and flow within them. You want to definitely start out as a choreography, as this dance where each technician knows exactly where they have to be. We planned for a week on handing this camera off through the front uh, window and we, you know, one operator handed it to a dolly grip who held it for the whole six, eight block drive. And then another operator hopped and grabbed it out of the car and ran down the street and did that. So we had three operators on one shot. These are the kind of things that are, are required and you have to break it down from a very technical aspect so everyone knows exactly where they are, what they're doing, uh, what their responsibilities are. And then once all that technical stuff is kind of gotten out of the way, you can just let your actors rock and everyone knows where they're supposed to be and where their focus is and what their exposures are. And then it becomes so alive and so immersive and exactly what you want to convey to your audience. That concludes the March podcast, and I thank you all for joining us today, and I will be heading down to New Orleans. I'll be already in New Orleans by the time you listen to this podcast. I am going to be asses to elbows on this thing, creating this new look in this new world. So I just want you all to have patience with me as I will answer as many questions as possible on Facebook and Twitter. But know that my main responsibility now is to really dive in and deliver the director's vision and to put as much on the screen that I possibly can. The content is locked and loaded for the inner circle. I've uh, been creating that for four months since I knew I was going to be on this project. We have just done shoot after shoot after test after test after test to really deliver incredible content until I get off of this TV show in late July. All right, take care and thank you again. If you love what you're listening to here, go to shanesinnercircle.com. It is knowledge that is forged on the set. This is not a classroom environment. This is boots on the ground, immersive learning that you can apply immediately to whatever your skill level is. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, 
Do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.